Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. I'm going to confess to you something that is a little bit difficult to confess and is a little bit embarrassing, but I don't want you to judge me. So do you promise not to judge me? Because I'm not going to tell you if you're going to judge me. That, like three people promised not to judge me. Do you all promise not to judge me? Thank you. Here's the confession. I like robes. I love wearing robes. I love wearing big, comfy, cozy robes that feel like big blankets with sleeves. And a couple of years ago, Kara got me the best Christmas gift ever. It was a Land's End robe, which is a premier robe, thick, heavy. You feel like you're wearing something. And my nightmare scenario, so like in the morning, I'll get up and I'll put my robe on and I'll instantly feel happy. I'll go out, have a glass of water. I'll fix a cup of coffee. I'll go downstairs to my basement office and I will have my robe on as I begin doing my prayer. I was doing the Southside prayer. I was reading some scripture, and then I'm very strange. I turn off all the lights downstairs so it's pitch black, and I walk around and I run into things, but I pray with all the lights off because I have this attention thing that if I see something, I want to go look at that, or if I see a book, I want to look at that. So I turn all the lights off pitch black, and I just pray, and it's wonderful. And then sometimes as I'm praying, I get clarity on a sermon idea. Now, I Usually the sermon is the first thing I work on in the morning after my quiet time. And I'll get clarity on something and I'll just start working away on the sermon after my quiet time. And sometimes I'll be there for like, it'll be like hours because it's just, it's just coming. Like the Spirit is just bringing me, you know, something about the passage that he wants to share with me, to share with you. And I'll realize that it's been hours and I'm working on the sermon. I still have my robe on. In my nightmare scenario, and don't you dare do this. Don't you dare do this. My nightmare scenario is that somebody comes to the house and Kara's like, Greg, someone here needs to talk to you. And I'm like, in my robe. That is the worst, that's the worst feeling because I would, be, I would feel completely unprepared. I would feel like you guys would think I'm a loser or something. And I just would not feel prepared for the day. But it happens. Sometimes I just get really focused and I forget I'm wearing a robe. That does have something to do with the passage today. So I'm going to read today's passage, and then then you are going to determine what it has to do with the passage, okay? We're we're going to begin this series on Advent, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. Advent is something that we use to look through the holiday of Christmas to um, the more important larger event, which is the return of Jesus. So in Advent, we look backwards when Jesus came the first time, and then we look forwards when Jesus comes the second time. That's the purpose of Advent. So today's focus is going to be on that, that second time that Jesus will return in the future. So we're going to look at, if you, if you want to turn there with me or follow along in your notes, and if you didn't get notes, we do have, we do have some extra notes. You can, you can raise your hand, and um, some notes might magically land in your hand. So Mark chapter 13 verses 24 through 37. I'm just going to read this first, and we're going to break it down and walk through the passage together. Mark 13, 24 
through 37. And Father, as I'm, I'm, as I'm reading your word, would you speak to us this morning? Scripture is the ever-present voice of Jesus. And so we want to hear from you. And it's in his strong name that we pray. Amen. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. One of the dangers in teaching is getting pulled into the weeds, getting pulled and in, in sidetracked in different directions about things that aren't as central to the passage. And it's very easy to do with this passage. And I'm going to avoid doing that. But I do want to briefly address this idea of the tribulation and the things that happen around the tribulation because there's a lot of there's a lot of bad teaching that I don't believe is faithful to scripture around this tribulation. A tribulation in the Bible is when things like difficulty, persecution, pain, suffering, wars, natural disasters, these things begin to intensify as we get closer and closer to Jesus returning. It's, we'll talk a little bit more about that later in this message. But that's the, that's the tribulation. Now, in the 1800s, there was a lawyer named John Nelson Darby. This lawyer became an Anglican priest in 
the Church of Ireland. And he had some strange interpretations of some of the Old Testament prophecies and a particular passage in 1 Thessalonians. And he created out of his strange personal interpretations this branch of theology called dispensational premillennialism. It's not important for you to know that. But what is important is that in dispensational premillennialism, there is this teaching that there is a secret rapture that happens. The secret rapture is the idea that Christians will one day disappear when Jesus is coming back. They'll just disappear. And for seven years, there will be tribulation on earth. And all the people who aren't Jesus followers will be left on earth to just kind of figure it out for themselves. That was not... That was a theology that was invented by John Darby in the 1800s. It wasn't ever perceived that way by the ancient church, the early church, the first, second, third century church. John Darby invented that. And then it became popularized with the Schofield Study Bible. Billy Sunday started using it in these um, you know, evangelistic meetings. And it was popularized. And it's like one of the biggest things that influences the ways that we understand how the end times are going to happen that is just not true this was popularized even more so by a series of books called left behind in the in the 90s these books were written and then it was made popular by a a movie which i mean i love nicholas cage i think he was in the left behind movie maybe kirk cameron but there there was these movies where a pilot would be flying and then they would just disappear and people would panic because all the like half the earth is just gone. And that, and there were even rumors of like different airlines would not allow two pilots in the cockpit at the same time in case the rapture happened. It got to be a little bit insane. It is not a faithful rendering of Old Testament prophecy and First Thessalonians and the other passages that have been used to propagate that. It's just it just isn't. It was invented by John Nelson Darby, and it's not, it's not a, biblical, a biblically faithful understanding of what's going to happen at the end. Now, if you want to hear more about that, I'm happy to talk more about that individually. But what is true, what will happen, is that Jesus will descend from heaven back to earth with all our friends and loved ones who have died in Christ before us. And there will be these cosmic convulsions as the creation itself begins to vibrate with anticipation that all will soon be made right. The scene is similar to that of a woman giving birth, that as she gets closer to the moment of birth, of giving birth, the labor pains grow more and more frequent and intense. And actually, there's a passage in the Bible that even says so. It's Romans 8.22. says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth 
until now. When human beings rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden and tried to usurp his authority, his kingship, his reign, and to take the reign of creation for ourselves instead of reigning with God through his power, when that happened, the creation rebelled against humanity. And that's the curse. All of this will be reversed when Jesus comes back. And this passage is describing that day that Jesus returns in the clouds. And clouds are significant. They represent the glory of God. And there's, I put a footnote in your, in your notes, and you can, you can read several passages about the, the, um, the importance of clouds in Scripture. It's just not just a random thing that Jesus, oh, I see him coming through these clouds. It's a very intentional use of, of that word. But as he's coming through the clouds, angels will gather up from the family of believers across the globe. And all of us who have died in Christ and who are still alive will be caught up together with God in the sky. But we're not going to disappear for seven years. That doesn't happen in two separate times. That is actually when all the judgment and everything happens. We'll be caught up together with Jesus in the sky. But in the same way that in those days when a conquering king comes back to a city, the city goes out to meet him and walks back into the, escorts him back into the city. That's what's going to happen. We're going to be caught up in the sky with Jesus and we're going to attend to the new creation with him. We're going to come back down to the new creation with him. There's a lot that happens in that period. There's judgment. There's all sorts of things. But that's essentially what is going to happen. Our bodies will be recompositioned. And we will become, we will have immortal physical bodies. Let's look at verse 28. Let's go through verse 28 through 31. From the fig tree, learn its lesson as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves. You know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gate. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Again, I don't want to get lured into the the weeds on this. That phrase, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. There are, I don't know exactly what that means. Nobody knows exactly what that means. There have been books written debating what that means. And no no one knows. That's a need-to-know basis. It's above our pay grade. There's some things in the scripture we just don't need to know. There are some very intelligent guesses um, that perhaps what he's talking about is the inauguration, the beginning of the coming kingdom. Perhaps he's talking about the spiritual kingdom um, coming to fruition now instead of the, the coming kingdom when Jesus comes back and makes it physical. There's all sorts of guesses, but no matter what, here's what you do need to know. Here's what we know for sure about this passage. The return of Jesus is imminent and immutable. Imminent means it's ready to take place. It's happening soon. Immutable means not capable of changing. It will definitely happen. 
Now, why didn't I just say the return of Jesus is going to happen soon and it'll definitely happen? Because it just, that just doesn't sound poetic. It's imminent and immutable, those are great words. Those are hefty words. And they, I think they capture, actually, the spirit of what Jesus is saying. Kind of the warning, but also the invitation to hope for this. Imminent. Jesus' definition of soon is a little bit different from our definition of soon. And this might lead to the question, what's he waiting for? What is Jesus waiting for? Some people believe that the, the authors of the New Testament thought that Jesus was coming back in their time. Thought that his return was so imminent that it would be like in our lifetime. And it, we've been waiting for a long time for him to come back. So what's, what's the hang up? A lot of questions the Bible doesn't answer, this one it does very clearly. And it's 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. It says, but Peter, Peter, who is a disciple of Jesus, says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So as much as we pray for Jesus to hurry up and come back, we should also pray for our friends, family, loved ones, neighbors, co-workers, people that sit with us in school, in classrooms at school, that all would come to know the grace, the saving grace of Jesus. That's what he's interested in. Populating heaven as much as possible, giving everyone as much an opportunity as possible to see him for who he really is and to receive the gift of salvation, eternal salvation in him. Immutable, not capable of changing. Every prophecy, prediction that the Bible says will happen, that should have happened by now, has happened. Everything that Jesus says will happen. There's nothing to stop it from happening. In Matthew 24, the disciples were looking at the temple like, isn't this beautiful? Look at this. Like, Herod did a great job rebuilding this temple. This is incredible. And Jesus said, this temple will be destroyed. Every stone will be toppled. Every one of them. And then later in 70 AD, the Roman armies gathered around one of the northern walls of Jerusalem at a time when Jerusalem was, the population was swelled because it was during the Passover. And they breached one of the walls and destroyed Jerusalem, killing thousands of people, and then toppled the temple. Jesus predicted it. He said it would happen. Not many decades later, it did. When Jesus says it will happen, it will. Look again at verse 28 and 29. When the tree learn its lesson, as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. 
Jesus is saying the equivalent of something like this. When I walk out on my, my back deck, it's facing north. If I look to the west and I see heavy, thick thunderstorm clouds, and maybe some flashes of lightning and maybe a wall of rain, I know where it's headed. I know it's coming my way. I know that I have 15 to 20 minutes and we're going to be in the midst of a, a thunderstorm. Jesus is saying, you know how to recognize the signs of nature. Pay attention to the spiritual signs, the signs of the kingdom, the signs of the earth and creation vibrating more and more violently as the coming of Jesus approaches. And we discover something about the shape of the Bible here. What we discover is that the Bible is leading up to a crescendo at the very end. The moment from the very beginning of the scripture, from Genesis 1-1, that tells us that God is the one who created everything, to the very end, this crescendo moment, when we're sitting around mountains, when Jesus has returned, our bodies have been reconstituted to these glorious bodies where we're still able to recognize each other and still give each other five and still remember things. So we've been reconstituted. The earth has been renovated, recreated, so that's even better than it was before. It's not just a garden like it was at the beginning. It's a garden city, places to live and do meaningful work and all the while worshiping God with a song in our heart for all of eternity. That's what we are looking forward to. In a lot of ways, the entire Bible is a preface to that moment. And that moment is when the real story begins. So in the meantime, how are we supposed to live? How do we wrap this up? How do, what's our posture as we wait for that day? That's verses 32 through 37. And I just want to read you the parts that are in bold. Be on guard. Keep awake. Therefore, stay awake. And what I say to you, I say to all. Stay awake. There it is. There is Jesus looking directly at us. It's like when an actor breaches the fourth wall, you know, you're never supposed to look at the camera or you're never supposed to look at the audience. If it's like a Broadway show, they're never supposed to look at the audience except this, the, the beautiful play called Our Town by Thornton Wilder where the main character is the stage manager, and he's always breaching the fourth wall. We usually, we expect to go to a show or watch a movie or watch a play and to see the characters just interacting with each other. But in our town, the main character is like interacting with you. He's looking at you. It's like he pauses from what he normally, who he normally would be interacting with, and everything just sits still, and he turns around and looks at us. That's what Jesus does in this passage. Verse 37 and what I say to you, the people around him, he stops and looks at us and says, I say to all, stay awake. 
This is Jesus talking to you right now, personally. That's our conviction of Scripture, the ever-present voice of Jesus. This is him speaking directly to you. If you were in this room alone with him and he was sitting in front of you, he would say, stay awake. Now, this is the only time this commandment appears in Scripture. I've put another footnote in. You got two footnotes today. You're welcome. It includes all these passages that you can look up on your own, but I'm just going to read you the highlights of each of these passages. Luke 21. Stay awake at all times. Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful. 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Revelation 3, 2-3. Wake up. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 6, let us keep awake. This is a theme in Scripture, constantly in the New Testament, this theme of stay awake, be watchful, pay attention. It means that there are things in this world that will lull us to sleep spiritually. Things that will draw our attention away from Jesus in his imminent return. Things that will draw our affections away from Jesus in his imminent return. So how do we know if we put our hope in something other than Jesus and his return? It's really easy. It's really simple. Your heart will tell you. <laughs> and here's what I mean. When you find that your emotions have been destabilized or you've gotten into a funk about something, follow your emotions back to the source. That will show you what you've put your hope in. These are over-desires and these are idols. The, the, a very live potential over-desire idol for me is... The Cleveland Browns. And I've watched the Browns for decades. I remember I was in my sister's bedroom watching on her little, I think it was her little black and white TV with my dad when Ernest Biner, God love Ernest Biner. We wouldn't have been in the game without him, so I don't want to hear it, but he... He fumbled, like on the five, the seven-yard line. One of the Denver Broncos hit him in his left arm. He was carrying it. He wasn't protecting it. And we thought he made it. My dad and I were going crazy. We were like, the Browns are going to the Super Bowl. They are going to this year. You just wait and see what Flacco does today. But we, we thought the Browns are going to the Super Bowl. This is going to happen. I am so happy. We were jumping. I've been watching them for years. This is honest to goodness. When I'm watching a Cleveland Browns game, there have been times where I've been absolutely devastated at the end, and it's like ruined my whole Sunday. And that's when I know this has become over-desire. A very nice way of saying this has become an idol. Anything that destabilizes my emotions or puts me in a funk, that's where I put my hope. So I actually, at times have stopped watching. I've stopped watching the Cavs during the regular season. I've stopped watching Ohio State football. I watched one game 
in part of one game because Kip invited us over for it. So I, I didn't even watch the whole thing, just part of it. I was just visiting and hanging out with everybody. <clears throat> I had to stop watching those games because what would they do? They would wreck me for the day. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. There's a king sitting on a throne right now governing the universe. And I'm with him. And he's coming back. And I'm worried about the Browns. Now, I still love the Browns. I still hope they win the Super Bowl, and I will enjoy it as a good gift from the Father. <laughs> but if some one in a million chance they don't win the Super Bowl this year, I'm not going to be devastated by it. Jesus teaches us the way to avoid that happening. This your last fill in the blank. Jesus teaches us very clearly. Place your ultimate hope in the fact that I am returning soon. Then organize your entire life around that one central hope. In the season of Advent, we are invited by Jesus to, like Revelation 3.2 says, wake much bigger things happening in this universe. Wake up. In one sentence, here's what I want to invite you to do as an application. Learn more about Jesus as our ultimate hope by reading through the eternal king slowly, out loud, even if it's difficult at first to understand. This is available to you in the lobby. We're going to do common practices every season, and we're going to include two seasons that are part of the church calendar, which is Advent and Lent. Our Advent common practice, which is something that I'm inviting every individual in the church to do, is to read through this devotional. It starts tomorrow, so you can go grab one of these on the table in the lobby. And grab one of our reading guides that gives you the schedule. You can read this. It doesn't matter how old you are. Um, if you're a teenager and you want one of these, grab it. If you're, if you're a tween you want one of these, grab it. If you're in elementary school you want one of these, grab it. If you want to read this as a family, grab one and read as a family. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. Just go through this. Now, some of this, this is put together by Christianity Day. It's really, really good. Some of it's a little bit hard to... Follow along, it might feel a little bit dry, but I would encourage you to try to find one nugget in each one of these as you're reading it slowly out loud. Just highlight one thing that stands out to you. It also gives you a passage in the Bible to read that's fairly small. Do this. This is my invitation. This is our invitation from God to become more spiritually minded, less focused on the myopic, you know, the things that are right in front of us on earth that tend to just sway us all over the place to the eternal truth that Jesus, the king of the universe, is coming back soon. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com. 